Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the In Conversation podcast, a joint production of Oxford University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clobus, and today I'm talking with Craig Simons, author of the book Nimitz at War, Command Leadership from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay. Craig, welcome back to the New Books Network. Thank you, Mark. Happy to be here. Well, happy to have you back on the show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling some of our listeners something about yourself. Sure. Uh, I spent most of my professional career as a professor of history at the United States Naval Academy, which I will say is the best job in the world. Great students, great environment, great institution. And one of the courses that I taught most frequently is the history of the United States Navy. So teaching naval history to naval midshipmen is what I did most of my life. I also did a tour briefly as a professor of strategy at the British Naval Academy, in Dartmouth, England, and I spent three years just recently as the Ernest J. King Professor of Maritime History at the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. You have this extensive uh, background uh, teaching naval history. You also have this uh, very uh, distinguished uh, 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 bibliography of books that you've written over the years. What led you to write a book about uh, Chester Nimitz? Well, Chester Nimitz is all around us at the Naval Academy, uh, particularly in the history department. I made an, at least a weekly, often more often than that, trek to the library at the Naval Academy, which is the Nimitz Library. And as you pass through the front portal, you encounter a much larger than life bust of Chester Nimitz by Felix de Weldon. And then, of course, my early uh, tenure there, for the first couple of years, I was in an office suite and shared a telephone with Ned Potter, who was Nimitz's first biographer and the co-editor with Nimitz of the book Sea Power, which we used as a text. So Nimitz was part of the environment in which I lived and worked for many years. And then, of course, there's a simple fact that he commanded the largest military theater in the world in the largest naval war in history. So clearly he's a guy in whom I've had interest for a long time. Now, you make it clear at the beginning of your book that your book is not a biography, that it's uh, that that Ned Potter's biography is a, a, a very you know, unique artifact in, in so many ways, one that really can't be replicated. So what were you seeking to do in this book? Well, I focused pretty exclusively with, of course, occasional flashbacks on Nimitz's tenure as a theater commander. It begins when he takes the oath to become the Sink Pack, Commander-in-Chief Pacific Fleet, on uh, the last day of 1941 and ends with his signing of the Instrument of Surrender on the deck of the Missouri and Tokyo Bay. So those are the bookends of this remarkable uh, nearly four-year tenure as the commander Uh, of not just the Pacific Fleet, but in fact, the entire Pacific Ocean area, including the Army, Navy, Air Forces of not only the United States, but Australia, New Zealand, Britain, France, Free free French on New Caledonia. So there's a lot going on in his tenure. As you explain in at the beginning of your book, it's not just, though, that he takes command of this enormous naval theater and that he goes on to command the, the largest 
you know, fleet in, in human history. It, it's also that the, the situation he inherits is just so dire. And, and I, I was, it was, I, I, your recounting of it just underscores, it's not that he's taking over on December 8th, 1941, where you have the, you know, American fleet, you know, devastated by the attack on Pearl Harbor. He takes over at the end of the year where the United States has suffered these subsequent setbacks over the, uh, over the succeeding three and a half weeks, what ex- what exactly was that like, and 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 how does he approach this challenge? Well, that's a great question, and it deserves a long answer. So let me try it this way, and that is to say that it's hard to imagine a circumstance in which a commander took over a military operation in worse circumstances. Uh, I mean, I suppose the commander of the Alamo on the last day of its defense, but. But it was it was dire. I mean, the battleship fleet was all but gone. It's not going to be operationally available for at least six months, probably longer. Everybody knows that. Nimitz also knows that the Allies have accepted the concept that Germany, in spite of the attack on Pearl Harbor, Germany is the more dangerous enemy. So the Allies plan to focus on Germany first, which means Nimitz is probably not going to get a lot of reinforcements soon. So he's got to do the best he can with what he has, which is, by the way, one of the pieces of advice that his boss, Admiral Ernest J. King, gave to him. But what makes him successful in that environment is that Nimitz had Nimitz had the personal uh, char- characteristics uh, to deal with not only difficult circumstances, but difficult people. I mean, he had to deal, first of all, with his boss, Ernest J. King in Washington, who had very clear ideas about what he wanted done and how he wanted it done. He had to deal, of course, with a jovial but also self-interested President Franklin D. Roosevelt. He had to deal with volatile subordinates like Bull Halsey and Howling Mad Smith and Terrible Turner and not Least of all, he had to deal with his counterpart in the Southwest Pacific, which is General Douglas MacArthur. And dealing with this variety of characters effectively and efficiently over a long period of time without making any of them into your enemies is a pretty remarkable accomplishment. <laughs> That's one of the things that, that really stood out for me when I was reading it was that your your description of how Nimitz's personality shown through in how he dealt with all these various challenges. I mean, the, the strain you describe is enormous. I, I was thinking in particular about how you described that the the early period of the war when, it, it, you know, Ernest King, uh, for, for lack of a, a better phrase, is, is trying to micromanage the war in the Pacific. I, I sometimes think that, that what King wanted to do was to, you know, take on the mantle sink pack himself and, you know, personally, you know, send out the carriers and the submarines and, and, and direct them himself. And, and, and Nimitz for him was just supposed to be the go-between who was going to do whatever King told him, even though, as you make clear, King did not have anywhere near the appreciation of the situation in the Pacific that Nimitz was getting uh, in Hawaii. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think King's original idea when President Roosevelt asked him to become commander-in-chief of the entire United States Navy worldwide that his thought was he would direct all these operations and he would have kind of gophers in place to execute the ideas that he came up with. But he appreciated almost immediately that was simply not practical. There was no way in the world he could be the operational commander and deal with 
operational decision-making in not only the Atlantic and the Pacific, but the Mediterranean and the Baltic and the Black Sea and the North Sea and deal with the Allies, it just couldn't be done. So he was going to have to leave it to Chester Nimitz, who in the beginning, I think, King thought might be a little too, what phrase shall we use, soft-hearted, non-confrontational, not aggressive enough that the job would be over beyond him in some way. And I think they started their relationship with that attitude, but it became clear, and, and King was not stupid. He's a good learner. King could see that he had the right guy in the right place, but it took him a good year, maybe more than that, to figure that out. It, it didn't help that King was expecting a level of aggressiveness that Nimitz simply didn't have the means to provide. And I'm not talking personally, I'm talking in terms of his uh, vessels, in terms of his obligations. When Nimitz inherits the, uh, the the command, as you described, the battles are still going on in the Philippines. There is an expectation of support there. There's also a expectation that you have the, the events taking place in the Southwest Pacific with the Japanese advance into Southeast Asia. You have the, 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 all of a sudden there's this need to fortify every place. And you describe very clearly, Nimitz simply doesn't have the resources, he has to make these judgments. And from King's perspective, these judgments he makes oftentimes seem to confirm this this lack of aggressiveness that King expects uh, from his commander. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, There's a lot going on. I think it's easy for us to say, well, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Let's go back and get them. Where are they? Well, they're just about everywhere. And that's one of the problems. One of the things, in fact, let me change that and say the principal thing the Japanese wanted to achieve early in this war was grabbing the resources of South Asia, what is now Indonesia, uh, the areas of British Malaya, now Malaysia, uh, Siam, now Thailand. All of these areas were rich in the vital resources that Japan needed to sustain its war in China. And their thought was, well, if we try to grab all those areas, the United States might interfere. I know. Let's keep them from interfering by knocking their fleet out on day one. Then we'll have six months or so to consolidate all these conquests. And then the Americans will say, oh, well, it's probably too late. Let's negotiate. Well, obviously, they misjudged their foe in making that assumption because that was not going to happen. But the thing that's happening in early 1942, let's say January to June of 1942, is the Japanese are running rampant over the Pacific. They're in the Indian Ocean, they're attacking Ceylon, they're attacking Malaya and Siam and the Philippines. And they're imagine Nimitz as the boy in front of the dam that's breaking in a hundred places and he only has 10 fingers trying to plug that dike. And of course, Nimitz doesn't even have 10 fingers. He's got four carrier groups, a handful of submarines, and only a few battered battleships to confront this. So when King tells him, get out there and do something, okay, but doing something is difficult in that environment. So what Nimitz has to deal with is a a plethora of threats, a, a, a an aggressive boss looking over his shoulder and a finite amount of resources to deal with them. And it takes a pretty, a pretty, <laughs> uh, 
uh, savvy individual to manage all of that. So how does he uh, respond to the initial in, in the initial months of the war? How does he use his resources and, and what sort of advantages does he have? Well, um, geography is an advantage and a disadvantage. I mean, one of the things to keep in mind about the Pacific War is the Pacific Ocean is big. I mean, it's enormous. Here's a statistic that often makes people raise their eyebrows. You could take all the continents on the planet, all of them, and put them in the Pacific Ocean, and they'd all fit with room to spare. So the Pacific Ocean is enormous. Uh, Nimitz, who was himself from Texas, used to joke that the Pacific is so large, it's almost as big as Texas. But (laughs) the advantage that gave him is that he could sit in Hawaii and pick and choose the places uh, where he could respond to these Japanese thrusts. The disadvantage is that if you send a carrier task force to the South Pacific to attack one object, uh, it's a thousand, two thousand, three thousand miles away from the central Pacific where it might be needed. So he had to be judicious in how he used his finite resources in this enormous theater of war. Another uh, thing that you describe in your book that uh, I, I find is is one of the benefits of, of this of an updated examination is you describe his use of intelligence. And that to me is, is something that you know, we, we had only really come to appreciate in the past, say, two, three decades, as we've had like Layton's memoir and, and archival research. And it strikes me he, he is very judicious about it, especially considering that he's dealing with some pretty uh, prickly personalities and, and a lot of uh, internal conflicts there as well. Yeah, that's true. Um... You know, all of this, the role that the Codebreakers played in the Pacific War was uh, highly confidential until the early 1970s. I hosted a conference at the Naval Academy in 1970, forgotten what it was, seven perhaps, when we had some of those then still living uh, people who had participated in uh, uh, HIPO, the uh, Codebreaking Center in Hawaii, to discuss it. And it was a Everybody was jaw-dropping, eye-wide about the role that this had played. And then it got to be, well, that was explained everything. We knew all of what they were going. No, that's not true either. But you're right. Uh, code-breaking and intelligence were key to Nimitz's decision-making and how to expand and where to send those uh, finite assets that he had, especially in 1942. Uh, now, his intelligence officer, whom he had inherited from his predecessor, was this fellow Leighton, who's a main character in the movie, the Midway movie that came out not too long ago, and is therefore one of the stars of the movie. That's because they used his memoir, I think, to fuel the text. And that's fine. Leighton worked for Nimitz, but Leighton's friend, Joe Rochefort, who worked in Hypo and did some of the code-breaking himself, along with his eclectic team of code-breakers, was supposed to report to Washington, D.C. So there's kind of a dysfunction in the uh, gathering of information on how to get it to Nimitz as the operational theater commander so that he could use it. And that's that in itself is an interesting story to see how that worked. And it might not have worked at all if it didn't turn out that Rochefort 
and Leighton were good friends and talked to each other kind of offline, as we would say today. Finally, there, the, uh, there, he had this challenge. You, you've already mentioned about how when he takes the command, he inherits a lot of these officers. And these are officers who distinguished themselves prior to the war. They rose to command the, these carrier groups. And it, it is, the, the story of the first months of the war is not simply just a matter of sending out carrier groups and, and conducting airstrikes or uh, confronting the Japanese at Coral Sea. It's about Nimitz sorting through these personalities and figuring out which ones are going, are, are, are really up to the challenge of the war. And those who, frankly, are not, who are not providing the level of, of aggressiveness and, and, uh, skill in terms of commanding these, these carrier groups in wartime. Oh, that's absolutely a central aspect of his whole command responsibility. And it's one of the things that King worried about. You know, Nimitz was empathetic by instinct. So King worried that Nimitz would see these fellows as, oh, he's a nice guy. I can't really remove him because just because he's not doing his job. Uh, that's a misreading of Nimitz. He, he did carefully assess their personality, their character, their ability to take advantage of the new technology, to use carrier task groups the way they were designed to be used uh, most efficiently in the war. So you're right, dealing with people was one of the things that Nimitz did best. Remember that the two terms, the two uh, tours that he had just prior to taking command at Pearl Harbor was chief of the Bureau of Navigation. Now that sounds like he's gonna decide how to drive ships around. But the Bureau of Navigation, which has now been retitled as the Bureau of Personnel, was actually the organization that assessed and assigned Navy officers worldwide. So Nimitz knew these guys and knew them pretty well. He'd served with many. He knew their records from being chief of the Bureau of Navigation. So the way he dealt with, managed, assigned, and if necessary, reassigned officers to various commands was absolutely central to the job that he did. And that he does this and and does it while trying to respect their personality, uh, respect their their the egos, because these these are you know men who could create a lot of trouble for him is is, is to me amazing, and 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 that gets to the approach you do from the book because you do discuss the, the the war in the Pacific generally you but you also incorporate the perspective from where Nimitz was. And I, I thought this was really well done when you talk about the battles, because you you give us the history of, say, Coral Sea, Midway, but you also do it from how Nimitz experienced it, which it, it strikes me as, as, as very, uh, as, as very fascinating because here's a person who we accord all this authority to, we, 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 we explain all these things he did. And yet when it came to the events themselves, the, the, the deciding moments where a battle was being waged he is sitting uh in uh oahu he uh, on oahu uh you know in in his uh post or, or 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 uh you know in his quarters and he's and these events are taking place playing out and he doesn't find out what what necessarily is happening for for hours or maybe in some cases days afterward yeah, that's true. You know, one of the things that makes the Second World War so interesting to students of history and students of humanity, if you would, is that it sits technologically at a point sort of halfway in between the age of sail, where a captain would go to sea with his ship, and once he's out of sight of land, he's virtually sovereign. 
He can attack somebody, sink a ship, surrender it, do whatever, because he has no ability to uh, have any communication whatsoever with his superiors. So he, he is the United States of America when he's over in the South China Sea or in the Mediterranean or wherever he may be, he's it. And today, where we have circumstances where the president of the United States can sit in the operations room in the White House and watch in virtual real time as SEAL Team 6 enters a compound in Abbottabad and takes out Osama bin Laden. So in between those two is where Nimitz sits. He has electronic communication with his forces in this enormous military theater of the Pacific War. But of course, he can send out information. He can't always get information because his ships and commands frequently, mostly, are operating under radio silence. Once they break radio silence and that message goes into the ether, the Japanese can pick it up. And even if they can't break its code, they can see that it's been sent. They can triangulate where it was sent from and draw conclusions based on that. So Nimitz's frustration is that he can't have actual control hands-on control of his forces. That's one reason why he has to have the right people in the right places to make those decisions. But he also hears through the electronic uh, ether what's going on. Now, he has to ask himself, when, if ever, do I intervene in this decision-making process? His philosophy was the commander on the scene is fighting that battle, and I'm not going to get in his way. I'm not going to second-guess him. On the other hand, I might have more information than he has. So it's it's a fascinating uh, command environment for somebody like Nimitz. Well, for anybody, really, but in particular, I suppose, for somebody like Nimitz. And as I said when I began this little diatribe, I think it's one of the things that makes the Second World War so interesting because technologically, it falls right in that hands-on but hands-off environment. And it seems that that Nimitz is, you know, as much whatever he may have wanted to have done. And, and, and you, you convey a, an impression of a person who was very uh, uh, tight lipped, who, who did not really engage in effusive demonstrations of, of how he was feeling that, that it, whatever he may want to do there, he did concede a lot of the operational control to the commanders on the scene. And that's where the personnel part comes in. It, it seems like he and Spruance were a great fit. He, it seems like he had enormous respect for Fletcher, which wasn't always the case uh, uh, among uh, a lot of people uh, in, in the Naval command. But then you have a situation like Robert Gormley when you get to the South Pacific in, in uh, later 42, where he has to make that incredibly difficult decision because of the situation that, that you know, because of how Gormley is responding to the challenge of confronting the Japanese uh, in the Solomons. Yeah, Robert Lee Gormley is not a household name uh, in American naval history. I, I doubt if even people who are students of the Second World War uh, know very much about him, but he's an interesting guy um, who I think has a lot of bad luck. Uh, he was, uh, before the war, before the United States entered the war, he was Roosevelt's personal representative in London and dealt with the British. He was kind of the liaison between the United States government as well as the United States Navy with the British prior to Pearl Harbor. And then when the war began, and the new command structure was set up in the Pacific, it was Gormley who was sent down to the South Pacific to become an 
instant theater commander. Well, here you go from London, where your job is to wear a nice uniform and hold your drink while you listen carefully to what people are saying. Now you're all of a sudden charged with commanding a theater, and he barely got there before King decided we're going to invade Guadalcanal. I know you don't have the resources to do it, but do the best you can with what you have. So this horrible Guadalcanal campaign is launched with barely enough resources to get the Marines ashore and then barely enough, and often it looked like not enough, resources to keep them supplied. And Gormley's responsible for all of this. And if you add to that, he's suffering from terrible impact teeth and he can't get dental care where he is. It's it's a mess. And Nimitz has to look at all this and say, all right, at what point do I say, oh, poor Gormley, let me give him the support he needs. And at what point do I say, Gormley, I'm sorry, your physical circumstances, the environment you inherited is beyond you. I've got to replace you. And he likes Gormley. Well, this this is a hard thing to do. And I think it's a kind of a case study um, in personnel management. Uh, which is one reason why I think this book is useful not just to students of military history, but to students of leadership generally, including business leadership. Uh, so that whole little case study, I think, involving Nimitz and Gormley and King, who's looking over Nimitz's shoulder, uh, I think is a fascinating study in the management of personnel. I, I like how you highlight the yardstick that he uses to measure it and it's the it's a phrase that he uses that you uh return to throughout the book which is the notion of calculated risk and it's one of those things that you can't you know define exactly what you know at what point is the risk worth it it's more about saying it's a calculated risk it's up to the commander on the scene and the commander who really succeeds is the one who can make that calculation and as you explain uh, as you uh, throughout the book sometimes the the in retrospect, the calculation seems to be off. And I'm thinking here, for, for example, about how after the Battle of the Philippine Sea, there was this sense that maybe Spruance was a little too cautious. And then, of course, you get to Lady Gulf and, and, and Bull Halsey, where the calculations seemed to have been you know, exactly the opposite. And, and, and how but that was always the, the means by which Nimitz measured whether or not these men were doing the job was, you know, how good was their assessment of, you know, of the risk and, 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 and their decisions based upon. Yeah, calculated risk. It's a great phrase. Nimitz first used it, I think, in one of his student papers at the Naval War College in the 1920s. And it you can find it, even if he doesn't use the phrase, you can find examples of it throughout his career. And what it really means is assess the potential advantages to be gained from the amount of risk you're willing to take to secure those advantages. And it's not a formula. You can't have a list of rules. Well, if this, then that. You can't use an algorithm to figure it out. Nimitz knew, and he wanted his subordinate commanders to know, this is a judgment call. Uh, but it's a very delicate one. What? Uh, it's not always just, let's be aggressive, and aggressive is good. Or let's be cautious, because we've got more forces than they do, and we don't have to be in a hurry. It's neither of those things. It's measuring the value of the objective against the potential cost of what you're willing to commit to secure that objective. And it's really the heart of strategic decision making, which Nimitz has boiled down to a two word phrase that I think is enormously useful calculated risk. How do you calculate it? Who calculates it? 
how much risk, to achieve what? I think it's the core of Nimitz's strategic thinking. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a calculus that changes as the war goes on, because one of the, the, the first two, uh, periods that you describe are ones at which the, the resources are incredibly straightened. And then it's almost like a light switch, as you describe as the, you know, the construction from the, 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 you know, the big naval bill of 1940 begins to become available as you start to see, uh, you know, the, the first Essex class aircraft carriers showing up, as you start to see the fleet uh, tankers showing up, the, the fast fleet tankers. And all of a sudden, what can be risked begins to, to, to uh, be changed because there's so many so many, so many more resources with which to do it. And, yeah, that, and, and how, go ahead. I was just going to say that switch is flipped in the middle of 1943 when the Essex arrives June 1st in Hawaii, and it's the leading edge of this whole fleet, really, an armada of new construction warships that it's going to give the United States overwhelming superiority over its foe. But in the year and a half up to that moment, Nimitz is still making these calculations. And, and the really interesting one is the one he makes at Midway in June of 1942, when the calculation is for him that I'm going to risk all of it for this because of an advantage I perceive. So, uh, yes, there is a light switch that I think flips in the middle of 1943, but also there are moments in 1942 where Nimitz takes unquestionably bold decisions uh, wherein he looked at the calculated risk and decided, yep, I'm going for it. And, of course, you know, in, in a lot of those cases, those victories were, you know, demonstrate that those were good assessments. And yet, even when you have those resources, it's it, it, there's there's a humanity that you uh, feature as well. And I'm thinking in particular about the the description of, of the battles of the Central Pacific and, and 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 the Smith versus Smith controversy, which at its core boils down to the notion of that you know you could have all these ships, you can have all these planes, and yet it comes down to the people, the 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 men who are being sent in there, and and, and the you're going to lose lives in in terms of winning this war, and and even when the result is victory, there is this question of whether or not it was worth that cost and, and how you make it clear that's preying in the back of Nimitz's mind in so many decisions he has to make. Well, it is. And it's not just the risk in terms of men or material. It's also how do you get everybody cooperating on the same page? You mentioned the Smith versus Smith controversy. One of the elements of Nimitz's command, I mentioned early on that he commands the Navy, the fleet, the Pacific fleet, also, the air forces associated with that, including the PBY squadrons and land-based Army Air. He commands uh, the Army soldiers that are on the islands that the Marines often take, and then they're garrisoned by Army forces. Uh, he commands New Zealand, Australian, French, all these forces together. And sometimes they have different objectives. So you got to keep all of them lined up on the same page. And that's a kind of risk as well. In the Smith versus Smith controversy, you had a situation where Marines and Army 
are each charged with similar tasks and each think they do it the right way. And Nimitz is the only operational commander who's in charge of both of them. It's almost like he's on the playground and two sixth grade boys are fighting and he's got to pull them apart and say, now boys, we have one objective here and that's to win the football game. Don't be swinging at each other. So there are elements to his command that is not just how do I get the best people in the right places to do the most efficient thing, it's also how do I make sure all these disparate parts agree to work harmoniously together? And of course, it doesn't help that it, to take your analogies one step further. There's this coach, uh, you know, in, in the next game over who's saying, oh, I can do the job better and I should take over the ability to make these decisions. That, of course, is Douglas MacArthur, who is, you know, even as uh yeah, as Nimitz comes to a, a, a very effective understanding with King, even as he has commanders in place that he that he can trust, he always has MacArthur, and especially as they as the uh, you know fighting him on on the Central Pacific Drive, uh, contesting for resources, uh, able to draw upon a lot of supporters in the army to say the army should be in charge of army troops and not you know some guy wearing a naval uniform. Exactly. And the very fact that Nimitz could not only get along with, not only cooperate with, uh, not only avoid have, having a fight with both Douglas MacArthur and Ernest King is astonishing. I mean, who who is able to do that? Uh, MacArthur was a difficult man, genius, perhaps. He has his defenders. And, and there are aspects of his command where they're clear flashes of genius, but the problem is people told him so often uh, and, and so frequently and so powerfully that he was a genius, he believed it. And, he, <laughs> and uh, he gave out these communiques every day about he was winning the war. He badgered the Joint Chiefs to give him command of the Pacific. Don't let the Navy destroy this war and so on and so on. And Nimitz just quietly got along with him, bought presents for his little boy. He knew exactly where his bread was buttered and managed to survive that whole experience with both King and MacArthur, thinking that Nimitz was a fine fellow. You know, I think one of my favorite anecdotes from your book was your description of the two photos he had in his office and how one of them was of Douglas MacArthur and why that photo was on his desk. Well, he never would say. The two photographs, by the way, one was sent to him by Franklin Roosevelt. And I found uh, the original of that in the Roosevelt Library. And it was to my good friend Chester from his old pal, Franklin. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way Franklin operated. Well, he, he kept that on his desk. And then there was another photo, a picture, a framed photograph on his desk. But it was not a glossy photo. It was cut from a magazine. He'd clearly seen MacArthur's photograph somewhere, cut it out, had his aide put it in a frame and kept it on his desk. It was not signed. It was not sent to him by MacArthur, but he kept that photo on his desk. And he was very coy about why he did that. Uh, the only hint we have, and it's a post-war testimony, so maybe take it with a grain of salt, is that Nimitz may have told another admiral that he kept it there to remind him not to hurl Jovian thunderbolts. Um, <laughs> whether he actually said that or not, I'm not sure, but I do think it was a cautionary tale. He kept that there to say, you know what, there's another guy in the Pacific 
who has his own command and his own ideas. And when I make a decision, I look over at that photograph and I say, is this going to piss him off? And again, I don't know that for a fact, but that would be my guess. Well, I have to say that the, the, the way you present Nimitz in the book, it may be apocryphal, but it definitely accords with all the other evidence we have about how Nimitz commanded. Yeah. Yeah. So another personality that, that Nimitz dealt with throughout the war was 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 Halsey. And I, I was struck by the, the I was never had really appreciated the degree to which he had this uh, the, this embarrassment of riches in terms of these commanders, how by 1943, he had these two proven successful commanders, Spruance and Halsey, and how the solution was to switch off and how it seemed that, you know, he got along very well with Spruance. Halsey, he got along with as well, but then you have Lady Gulf. And you, you make it clear in a way that I hadn't really appreciated until I read this, the degree to which Halsey's limitations caused Nimitz to start to, to make decisions that were subtle, but nonetheless imply that that he had, had come to a decision about Halsey's limits as a commander that required him to be more uh, directly involved in, in, in some of the key decision making. You know, you use the tools you have in the ways that suit their strengths in particular. Uh, there's a great little passage somewhere in that book from uh, actually Nimitz's son, Chet, who was a submarine commander by 1943. And in a post-war interview, uh, Chet said that uh, his father, uh, when it was uh, uh, a delicate amphibious operation that required careful coordination, that was Spruance's job. When it was a cavalry charge, he gave that to Halsey. And, and that's not literally true, of course, but I do think that Nimitz very carefully tried to make sure he used the strengths of his two fine uh, carrier group commanders uh, in the areas where they could operate most efficiently. Remember that uh, Spruance was Nimitz's chief of staff, lived in his house, lived in a bedroom across the hall from him uh, for a year and a half. They had breakfast together. They walked to work every day. They worked all day long. They walked home together. They had dinner together. They walked in the afternoon. They did athletics together. Uh, they were virtually a single person for, those, for that year and a half. So uh, Nimitz had a very fine uh, sense of what Spruance was likely to do. And, and if his relationship with Halsey wasn't quite as close as that, he still had a pretty good sense of who he was and what he could do, and perhaps more importantly, what he shouldn't be asked to do, because that was not where his strength lay. And again, this is all part of Nimitz's ability to look at the not only the tools he had in terms of ships and guns and so forth, but the tools he had in terms of personnel and make the right decisions to put the right people in the right places. And Halsey was great in terms of that aggressiveness, but then it, his limitations really started to come out uh, as, as time went along. And yet it, it, it was, uh, it wasn't simply, he couldn't do what he did with say Wilson Brown and, and, and transfer out because Halsey was too public. I'm thinking in particular, not just of Lady Gulf, but the typhoons. And that's something that, you know, people who are, who have, you know, passing familiarity with, with the war are, don't, it doesn't get quite the same degree of attention. But Halsey's response to two typhoons where he were, which, you know, made the, the damage done by them far worse than it might have been. It, it seems that Nimitz was having to, to, he had to make this decision that, that was difficult for him to, 
you know, to start, you know, playing a more direct role in terms of telling Halsey what he should be doing with this fleet? Well, in a way, we're back to calculated risk. Uh, leaving Halsey in command involved risk of one kind, and that is that Halsey might head off in the wrong direction, do something volatile. But in a way, you wanted him to have that instinct because that's the aggressive instinct. That's the cavalry charge that Nimitz knew Halsey was capable of doing. So he didn't want to put him up on the shelf. The risk on the other side, it's also a calculated risk that Halsey might prove to be too dangerous in command. Uh, and then, of course, you mentioned already there's the public relations aspect of this. Uh, Nimitz didn't let public relations rule his decision making, but he was someone who understood that, particularly in a democracy, it's important to have public support. And Halsey was such an enormous public figure. I mean, he was on the cover of Time magazine when the war began. Everybody loved his quotations. He was going to ride the emperor's white horse through the streets of Tokyo. He was going to make sure that by the time the war was over, the Japanese language would be spoken only in hell. Well, you can't just take that guy and toss him aside and give him a desk job somewhere and say, well, he's outlived his usefulness. Uh, Nimitz recognized that all of these things, the risk that he might do too much, the risk that he might be the wrong guy in the wrong place, the risk that it would damage public morale are all elements of the decisions he made. He, he did, in fact, rescue Halsey from his own foolishness more than once. And I'm not sure Halsey ever quite appreciated it. Another thing that stands out when you get to the later part of the war is Nimitz's determination to remain connected to it. And, and, and this I was thinking of when I read about your description of his move westward from uh, Oahu to Guam. And because it, it, it's, it, it seems it would be so easy for him to continue to direct the war from Hawaii, which was, you know, a, a fairly comfortable place. But he makes the point to go to Guam and, and, and Guam had been, uh, you know, uh, reconquered, taken, retaken from the Japanese, but there were still Japanese, uh, holdouts there. And, and actually the one that the, 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 the detail that you described that strikes me the most is the fact that they still, there was still the smell of all the dead bodies. And it's, it's the kind of thing that, that so many commanders might, might, you know, try to, you know, avoid that. But Nimitz is very much, willing to you know be there so he can both do his job but also i, I think i i i sense there's the a sense that he wanted to remain connected to what was going on with the war not just for the commanders at the top but for but for the men uh, further down the command he he described how he flies out he visits them at the front which is not something that that every commander necessarily did yeah that's true he I, you can imagine how frustrating it is for someone who spent his entire life um, entire adult life, uh, thinking about how to conduct an efficient war to be so distant from it. I mean, King is operating the war from Washington, D.C., from for crying out loud. Nimitz is doing it from Oahu, from Pearl Harbor. And, and yes, there's a radio. And yes, you can go out and visit these islands, which he did. He visited every island but one that the Marines took in his entire command uh tenure. And that one island that he did not fly to was Peleliu in the Palau group. Peleliu, I think he came to appreciate, had been a mistake. 
It was underway when he got word that maybe circumstances had made it no longer necessary to be seized, but pulling the cord on that after it had already begun, maybe that wasn't such a good idea either. So he didn't visit Peleliu, and, and you can draw whatever conclusions you like about why he may not have done so. But going to the front, seeing the men, appreciating the circumstances, allowed him in subsequent campaigns to appreciate the risks and the costs in your cost calculation, uh, risk management, uh, at, from Tarawa to Kwajalein to all of these subsequent islands, he went there personally. Now, from Hawaii, you can do that. It takes you all day, maybe two days in those prop-driven airplanes of the 1940s. But with his headquarters in Guam, he could get to the front line in a matter of two hours. Uh, the Philippines or Okinawa, uh, which he did from Guam. So, his notion was he's getting closer, as close as he can without being irresponsible, to the front line so he can not only understand what's happening, he can feel what's happening. And that's important for him. And I, I and of course, that probably played a role in how he responded to the news of the atomic bomb. Because it's it, you know by by the time you get to the end of the war, there's there's in addition to all the previous campaigns, there's Iwo Jima, there's Okinawa, and 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 it, it's it, as you make clear, I mean it, it's it's underscoring the sense that the war is not getting cheaper. If anything, it's getting more expensive, and the the you know the strain that that must have po uh, posed, and, and to then to have the announcement that uh, as you make clear, he thought that he. That the United States could have defeated the Japanese without invasion, that that they could have done so navally, and, and yet at this and in a sense that that proved to be true, but not because of the submarines or the carrier strikes, but because of the atomic bomb. Yeah, he was not in favor of an invasion um, from Saipan onward. Well, really, actually, from Tarawa onward, it becomes clear the Japanese are going to sell their lives dearly. Uh, the calculation uh, that you make about accepting risk for possible gain is different in the Pacific than in any other theater because if the Japanese are going to fight till the absolute last Japanese human being is dead, the costs of that, not just to the Allied troops, but to the Japanese themselves, is almost unimaginable. So the idea of invading at a time when the Japanese government was issuing sharpened bamboo spikes to teenage girls uh, led him to believe there has to be a better way to end this than invading the Japanese home islands. His own belief was that the submarines would create what amounted to an effective blockade that would shut down the Japanese economy. The bombing from the air would ruin their industry. Uh, and at some point, the Japanese would just have to say, enough. Um, but it's hard to see whether that would have been true absent the atomic bombs. So I don't want to say he was glad for the atomic bombs, but I will say that he was glad that the plans for an invasion could be shelved, and that never had to happen. Now, at the end of your book, you uh, assess Nimitz uh, and, and summarize his career. And there's a sentence uh, at the end that 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 really I thought was was just a, such a nice job of encapsulating uh, the the 
argument that you're making through the book, which is that Nimitz's greatness lay less in his ability to do great things than his facility to convince others that they could do great things. And it, it, it's, it, it's what fascinates me about that is how that's the kind of thing that so often means that the credit goes to the Halseys and the MacArthur's. And yet it, it's, I, I think there's something, uh, appreciable, something that, that I actually, you know, it, I'm happy about that Nimitz has received that due credit, even when, as you point out, his greatness was in making, allowing others to do the great things that they did for which they, uh, have also, you know, received, uh, their share of credit and perhaps, uh, some more beyond that. Yeah. And that's a, that's a rare thing, uh, sadly, uh, in some people that we think of as leaders, the ability to say, well, I don't want credit for this. I simply want to create an environment in which others can do great things and achieve the objectives for which we all strive, and just never mind me. Uh, that's a bit of an overstatement, but not too much. And it was clear throughout his entire naval career, and particularly his command tenure after he arrived at Pearl Harbor. I mean, he would meet with subordinates and he'd listen to them carefully. He'd look them in the eye. He'd encourage them. He'd tell them how good they were. And boy, are you going to go do great things? He would support them materially and psychologically whenever he could. Uh, he would have to occasionally say no uh, when it was clear that that was the correct answer. But on the whole, what Nimitz did was facilitate others being successful in the war, and they knew it. I mean, that's the interesting thing. I think Halsey knew his own limits. He knew he was uh, had a tendency to draw the sword and just charge blindly into violence, uh, but he also knew that Nimitz would have his back, that Nimitz would support him. I think Spruance knew that uh, Nimitz understood the circumstances he faced and would support him as needed in the war that came. And I think almost everyone who served under him, uh, from the ensign in the cockpit to the gunner on the cruiser to the commanders of fleets, understood that they had somebody who was watching out for them, taking care of them, and had the big picture in mind. And if that sounds like I'm, uh, I'm gilding the lily a bit there, I suppose I am. <laughs> Well, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Everybody wants to know, as soon as you finish a book, what's the next book? Give me a break here, Mark. Um, actually, I am recording some lectures for the what's now called the Teaching Company, sometimes known as the Great Courses uh, on the History of the U.S. Navy. I have one out on the Pacific War, which did rather well, and and these are fun because you're essentially talking to an interesting, interested audience. So I'm working on that. But I have some other ideas in the back of my head for future projects. So you'll probably hear from me again. I hope we do. And I hope we can have you back on the show to discuss them. Thank you, Mark. Well, thank you very much, Craig. I hope you have a wonderful day. You as well.